0: those of you who have been with us this summer, you know that we've been concentrating on texts from the Old Testament, particularly out of the first five books of the the Old Testament known as the Pentateuch. Today, our scripture reading is from Numbers chapter 21, uh, verses 4 through 9. You'll find that on page 154 in your pew Bible. I'll actually start reading from verse 1 just to give you a little context for the passage. Hear the word of God. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captives. And Israel vowed to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah. Gracious Father, manifest your presence among us. Open your words to our hearts. Show your glory revealed in the cross of Jesus Christ to us. For we ask in his name. Amen. After their escape from Egypt, their bondage there, the Israelites make a long trek through the wilderness south of Canaan to the land of promise. And along the way, They are forced to make an extended detour through the desert, a place the Old Testament associates with danger, a wilderness filled with scorpions and vipers. And God guides them through this desolate place, and he sustains them along the way. Most notably, he provides for their physical need for food with manna from heaven. But the way is hard and long, and impatience and boredom with the same old diet every day causes them to grumble and complain. Instead of marveling at God's gracious provision, they call the supernatural manna contemptible, worthless bread. Rather than looking up to God, they look down at their present circumstances. Forgetting the bitter slavery and death from which God delivered them and the powerful victory he just gave them over their Canaanite enemies, they murmur among themselves that they had it better in Egypt. Finally, they accuse Moses of leading them out into the wilderness to die. They doubt God's redemptive plan, deny his ability to deliver them, and despise what provision he does make for them. Their lack of perspective puts them into a dangerous spiritual pit. Like the children of Israel, we sometimes find ourselves in the wilderness, focusing on the circumstances around us rather than looking up to God. In these situations, we are to remember that the dangers of our present wilderness experiences cannot thwart God's purpose in our lives. From the text in Numbers that we read, we can learn about this dangerous pattern of looking at circumstances and how to avoid it. So this morning, we're going to briefly look at the forgetfulness of God's people, the repentance of God's people, and the deliverance of God's people. First, in verses 4 through 6, we observe the forgetfulness of God's people. Because they focused on their present circumstances, Israel forgot that they were called to be God's holy people. They forgot the covenant promises made to Abraham, that they would be blessed and in turn become a blessing to others. They forgot God's gracious and miraculous redemption and his day and night provision and leading. Remember, God not only delivered them from Egypt by taking them to the Red Sea, day and night there was a pillar of fire and cloud to remind them of the presence of God. It wasn't like they had to go very far to be reminded of God's presence and provision for them. Nevertheless, they forgot. They complain and shout out to Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness? There's nothing to eat here and nothing to drink, and we hate this wretched manna. And while they take their dissatisfaction out against Moses in actuality, they are seeing against God. The Lord dislikes the sin of complaining because it's an expression of unbelief, disobedience, and pride. When people grow discontented, it shows they've forgotten God's past deliverance and have taken for granted his promises of mercy and grace to us. Such forgetfulness always brings about tragic consequences. In Israel's case, God sends a plague of fiery serpents in judgment for their evil accusations. Many are bitten and die. And sometimes we find ourselves in, spiritual world, in the spiritual wilderness, grumbling and complaining, ultimately, ultimately against God. We shout out to God, why have you brought me into this wilderness place? You have not provided what I really need. And like the children of Israel, we fail to remember God's past goodness and his mercy to us, and instead focus on our present discomfort. We dig ourselves into a pit of despair, bitten by snakes of doubt and fear and resentment, self-pity and sin. While these virtual snakes may not physically kill us, they certainly kill our spiritual life and our fellowship with God. Unless we learn the same lessons of restoration as the children of Israel. and We see the first step in that process of restoration in verse 7. It says, as a result of the plague of serpents that people finally come to their senses and realize that by speaking out against Moses, they've also spoken out against God. They finally just realize all the things that they had at God's hand and the mercy and grace of their deliverance Of course, the serpents helped to remind them that they had been complaining not just against Moses, but against God himself. And fearing that they might all die if something didn't happen soon, they confessed their sin. And they asked Moses to intercede for them. Now, repentance is more than being sorry for the consequences of your sin. True repentance involves recognition and confession of the wrongs committed. My ministry, I have counseled Hundreds of people who deeply regretted the consequences of their sin without really recognizing the sinful nature of their actions, let alone the need to come to God and confess them. and not that how it all goes oftentimes? We're oftentimes sorry about the things that happen when we sin against God, but sometimes that, that sorry doesn't take us to the point of repentance, the point of really recognizing that we really have sinned against God or against others. Now, it took a jarring judgment for the children of Israel, but they got it right. They begin by clearly recognizing that they had sinned against God in their tirade against Moses. So their next step was to turn to God for relief. Since Moses served as their mediator to God, they asked him to intercede for them. That's interesting, isn't it? They asked Moses, who they have just been complaining about, who said, you've just brought us out into the wilderness to die and leave us here, and you didn't give everything you told us you were going to give us, and it's to him that they finally realized, well, we need to go and ask him to intercede for us. We can't even go to God ourselves. We have to go to Moses and ask him to do it. And as we will see, God hears their petitions through Moses. Now, not every wilderness experience that we find ourselves in is a result of sin on our part. Sometimes we find ourselves in the wilderness, and it's not directly the result of something that we've done against God. Maybe sometimes the result of something someone has done against us. But sometimes when we get in those places of wilderness experience, it's what we do with it that that causes us to recognize we've sinned. We find ourselves in a wilderness, and instead of recognizing God's provision for us, We're just like the children of Israel. We begin to grumble and we begin to complain. It's our attitude that condemns us while we wander through those wilderness experiences of life sometimes. And often these sins are just like those that plague the Israelites. Sins of grumbling and complaining. I think that's probably the most popular sin among us. We all do it and we're tempted to minimize them as respectable sins. That's a phrase that Jerry Bridges, a PCA teaching a ruling elder, uh, uh, navigators brother who used, wrote a book called "The Respectable Sins," and those are sins that we tolerate or excuse as somehow more acceptable. Those are things that we commonly do, and we say, "Okay, well, those are respectable sins, right?" Well, they can grumble and complain; they're sins, but yeah, but, you know, they're not as bad as murder, and it's not as bad as one of the Ten Commandments. So you just name—you can name a list of them. and He does in his book, you know, pride and and. Uh, doubt or unfaithfulness you can fill in the blank we all have acceptable sins things that we tolerate and grumbling and complaining seems to be among that list for many of us but this episode in numbers makes it clear that they are not really acceptable sins in the sight of god in reality what underlies them are the deeper sins of forgetting god's mercy and grace and the lack of faith or ungratefulness now i know in my own life When I am tempted to grumble or complain about a situation, it's most often because I have forgotten what God has done for me in the past, certainly. I mean, if I just think about it for a a few minutes, about everything that he has done for me, even before I even came to know him. I look back at my life after I became a believer and say, you know, there are lots of things that God kept me from long before I came to know him, because he was working my life long before I finally recognized my need for him. But sometimes when I get in one of those experiences of life, when I'm tempted to grumble and complain, I forget God's mercy, I forget his grace, and I forget his promises. I forget that he has an ultimate plan of redemption for all of us and for us as a people. And once we recognize those sins, though, we need to turn to God and repent in prayer. Fortunately, unlike Israel, though, we no longer need a human mediator. We don't need someone else to go to God for us as we'll look at more deeply in a few minutes, and as we sang in all the songs that Robin did for us today that focus on the cross, we have free access to God through Christ because of his death on the cross. The children of Israel had to go through Moses. We don't. The cross of Christ has given us free access. So when Israel came to their senses, they came up with a simple solution. The simple solution was confess their sins against God and against Moses and to intercede for God to take away the snakes. In verses 8 and 9, we see that God delivers them, but his deliverance wasn't as simple as their request. It would require an act of faith. Now, God could simply remove the snakes, could he not? But the people had to learn to deal with them and face the consequences of their sin. And sometimes we find ourselves in wilderness experiences. We ask God to take us out, but... God doesn't always take us out, especially if it's a, it's a result of some sin in our lives that we sometimes need to feel the consequences. Because if it didn't, the next time it would be that much easier for us to ignore the consequences of the things that we do. But God sometimes answers our prayer in different ways than we expect, and certainly did for the children of Israel. He didn't take away the snakes. He didn't just eliminate them. So God directed Moses to make a bronze snake and to put it on a pole in the middle of the camp and when people were bitten, they could look up at the snake and live. The image had no power in itself. The bronze serpent didn't have any power in and of itself. Unfortunately, Israel would forget that. And we discover in an obscure verse in 2 Kings 18.4, we'll look it up at the end of the service, what happened to that snake centuries later. King Hezekiah actually had to break it up and destroy it because they had preserved it, and the Israelites, as all of us are tempted to do, start worshiping the thing rather than worshiping the creator. And so Hezekiah was one of the good kings of Israel, had to break it up and destroy it because Israel was taking something that they had preserved to help them remember something that God had done in the past and began worshiping it instead of God. It's just the way we are. We're just this, our hearts hearts are factories of idols, Calvin says, and that's really true. They had forgotten that the power to heal didn't come from the, the symbol itself. The power to heal came from God. And healing would only occur if God's people believed that he would heal them when they obeyed his word to look at the serpent. They are granted healing only to the degree that they trust in God's provision. If they were bitten but did not trust God's provision, they would still die. So God put it in the middle of the camp, but if they were bitten by the snake and they refused, whether because they were stubborn or they didn't want to believe and didn't look on the serpent, as God had required them to do, they would still die, even though the, the, the means for the deliverance was right there. God provides the means to deliver us from the death that is the wages of our sin, but we must respond to that merciful gift in faith. When our life becomes a snake pit, and difficulties come our way, our solution is often to be sorry that we are in trouble and simply expect God to remove the snakes. But God promises that when our life is filled with sin that should result in our physical and spiritual death, like the people of Israel, we can look up and live. And to what should we look up? In John's gospel, Jesus alludes to this historical event in chapter 3, and he gives it new significance and new meaning. Speaking of his redemptive mission, Jesus says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. The Lord can relieve us from the dangers and distresses in ways far beyond our human imagination. He does it through the cross. A cross of salvation and healing that was prefigured By the snake on the pole in the wilderness that we read about here in Numbers. So, Israel was on a journey between her redemption out of slavery in Egypt and her entrance into the land of promise, their place of rest. In many ways, their journey parallels our own. Their story is our story. We're on a journey between our redemption through the cross of Christ and our entrance. Into the place of rest in our heavenly kingdom. But in between, that journey of faith sometimes is arduous and sometimes is demanding and puts us in places of wilderness. Like God's people in the past, we're tempted to forget all God's mercies and goodness when we face hardships. instead of trusting God to provide for us, we complain and we doubt him. But God calls us to trust him. Despite all the dangers of our journey, despite any hardships that may come, despite finding ourselves in places that we do not like, we are to trust that there is one who ministers to our every need and who can guide us safely to a place of rest. We are to remember that the dangers of our present wilderness experiences cannot thwart God's purposes of our lives. They cannot thwart God's purposes in our lives. We may struggle. We certainly will. But we do not have to live in defeat and despair, whether as a result of our own sin or the sin of others in our lives. When we're tempted to look down, to look around and see what is wrong with our present circumstances, God calls us to look up. And the first step toward deliverance is repentance. Turning from every other means of salvation that we depend on. What does this look like? Well, Ian Duguid in his commentary on numbers sums it up well. So I'm going to read a lengthy section of it what he had to say, because he said it a lot better than I could say it. He says, repentance is not simply a matter of recognizing and bemoaning what great sinners we are. As long as we're doing that, our eyes are still fixed on ourselves. Repentance is turning our heart to Christ in the midst of recognizing our own sin and fixing our eyes once again on the remedy for that sin offered to us in the gospel. Repentance is catching ourselves when we have grumbled over some challenge to our comfort or our sense of being in control or our acceptance by the in crowd, and deliberately turning our face afresh toward Jesus. Repentance is picking ourselves up after we have sought comfort in some earthly substitute for God, whether food, or lustful thoughts, or shopping, or gossip, or an angry outburst, and saying to ourselves, this is my comfort. My only refuge is Jesus. The life of faith is a life of repentance that is constantly turning away from sin and turning towards Jesus. If you're a non-believer caught in a wilderness created by your sin and distance from God, then the call from this passage to you is clear, like it was to me at some point in my life long ago. Choose life, not spiritual and physical death, by looking up in faith to the cross and the gospel that it proclaims a gospel that really is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. If you're not sure what that means, talk with me, Camper, or any of the elders in this church. They'll be glad to talk to you about it. If you're a believer who is struggling in a wilderness of fear or resentment, shame, pain, or guilt caused by your sin or the sin of others against you, God calls you to remember that ongoing deliverance does not come through self-focused grief or guilt. It comes from looking up to the cross of Christ and the gospel that tells us that we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared to believe and we are more loved and welcomed by Christ than we could ever hope for. And when we look to that cross in faith, we are united with Christ Given a privileged position that gives us the ability to resist sin. It's simple and it's hard at the same time. We sang several songs about it this morning. And didn't, when you sing them, your hearts rejoice in the power of the cross that you sang about? And yet, when we find ourselves in a wilderness place, it is so hard for us to simply throw ourselves upon that same cross. We've got to find some way to do it. We've got to find a process. It has to be three steps to that or seven steps to this. We have to find something, a checklist or something. You know? And I'm a kind of a checklist kind of a guy, but it doesn't work that way with God. We have to throw ourselves at that same simple gospel and believe that the promises that are there are promises that are made to us and to cling to them, and to believe them, and to refuse to worship the other idols or means of salvation that we would like to focus on other than Christ. Or to be sorry for the things that have happened to us, rather than and focusing on our circumstances rather than looking to the, the cross of Christ. It is in the cross that lies the power to liberate hearts, caught in seemingly, seemingly unbreakable cycles of defeat. And that gives us hope that we can change. God never promises to provide what we need. To, God never promises to remove us from the wilderness. Sometimes he graciously does. Other times we're there for a reason. But he does promise to provide what we need to overcome and be victorious in this life. When life is a pit filled with snakes of our own or someone else's making, we can look to the cross and be delivered. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, it is tempting for us, human as we are, fallen as we are, to look to other things to save us. But the simple truth is, it costs you a lot to do it, but you did it on the cross by sending your son Jesus Christ there on our behalf. Father, as we go through the week this week and find ourselves in places of wilderness, whether for an hour or whether for a week, help us to focus not on our circumstances, but help us to find our strength, our relief, our deliverance in the cross of Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.